Hello and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm joined, as always, by Greg. Hello! And today we will be reviewing Roleplayer. But before we do, let's talk about what we've been playing. And what we've been playing is actually quite a lot this week. We had a chance to sit down with some of our friends, your new roommate, yes, and some others, and play quite a few games, one of which was Trains, yes, which we had played before, or at least I had, but only a couple of times. And it's always intriguing. It's a game that's basically like a cross between Dominion and Ticket to Ride, is what I used to say, although now I think it's almost more like Paris Connection yeah. or Kingdom Builder. Um, I think Paris Connection would be the best one of those, just because of the map aspect of Paris Connection, where you can go literally anywhere and you're trying to connect the cities in the same way. Yeah. And you can do the same thing with placing your track on the same tiles as others, and that's things that you can't really do with Ticket to Ride yeah. or Kingdom Builder, for that matter. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so you've got, you know, you've got the deck-building element of it, which is... Sort of a way to earn points by buying residential buildings, you know, apartments, towers, skyscrapers. But more than that, really, it's just sort of a way to earn money so that you can build tracks on the board, which is, you know, you can earn points on the board by connecting various parts of the city and building stations there, or by connecting various remote locations that are worth a flat amount of points. And so it's, it's an interesting blend, um, and I think it plays very well. Yeah, and I think it's very interesting because we've played it both with many people and then also with just the two of us and the different dynamics are very apparent Mm -hmm. like when we were playing with just the two of us we did not even get close to like getting each each other's way we both started on like opposite ends we never even crossed paths a single time we never shared a city we never shared anything else versus when we started with multiple people, like four. Then everyone was on top of each other. Yeah. Because the map size does not change. You play with the same size map on four players as you do with two. And the same number of tokens as well. So it's not yeah. even like you have, you know, proportionally fewer and could take up just a quadrant. Like if you want to use all of your pieces and spread out that way, you're going to be on top of people. So it is interesting to see sort of how strategies change and, and uh, how the dynamic changes when you are in a two-player situation versus a four-player situation. And I think it is probably similar to... I know you've made the comment before about Carcassonne. Mm-hmm. You know, you, more than anything else, have played two-player, yeah. which is a very different dynamic from that one game where I hopped in with you yeah. know, the two of you and sort of changed everything. So it's it's interesting when you have games that don't scale to see how the different dynamics play out. Yeah, exactly. And it's not even that it doesn't scale, it just scales completely different. The The game just has a lot of different dynamics depending on if you have two or more players, but it's a lot of fun in general. Yeah, I've, absolutely. I really enjoy it. But we also got to play a few other games. We brought out an old favorite, Mysterium. Yeah, we, we played the Polish version because, of course we did, because the American version is ritzy and pointlessly fancy. But it was, I hesitate to say fun, because at one point I was the ghost, and I just kept getting crap for dream cards, and Mr. Jacob over here guessed literally every available location before finally settling on the right one. And, you know, some of it's my fault. You know, I didn't give him very good cards, and actually one of the first cards that I gave him was extremely... Like misleading, like there was a chessboard on it, and I didn't realize that there was a chessboard pattern on two of the other locations, and I was like, okay, that's on me. But at a certain point, it's just kind of like, <laughs> work with me here. 
um, but it, yeah. it was a lot of fun uh, mm-hmm. to to play, and it was with some people that I hadn't had an opportunity to play Mysterium with before. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was cool, just kind of you know seeing what wavelength they're on and and getting uh, getting to know them a little better. Yeah, seeing how much of a different wavelength all of us are on, because well, we were. <laughs> We d- we didn't manage to beat it in the seven rounds a single time. So the first game was okay. Then we, you were the ghost. We got yeah. nine rounds. I think it was nine. I think it was nine rounds. That but, wasn't too bad. Yeah, it wasn't too bad at all. But at the same time, it's just it can be interesting uh, when other people have different imp- interpretations of certain cards. So it's good to see you know how other people want to play it. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Um, and then with the same group, after we finished up Mysterium, we played 10 Minutes to Kill, yep. just because it was getting late, and they were like, all right, we've got time for a quick game. We said, a quick game, you say? <laughs> Have we got a game for you? So yeah, we, we busted out 10 Minutes to Kill, and that was a lot of fun. They yep. they enjoyed it pretty well. And that's... They enjoyed it enough to actually play ask to play it again. Yeah. And that I feel like that's been the experience with most of the people that we've played with. It's, yeah. you know, they, they play the first game. It's a little bit confusing just in terms of okay when can i use this weapon mm-hmm. who am i allowed to move who am i allowed to assassinate with and then once they sort of get their feet wet they're like oh it's over yeah let's go again let's do, yeah yeah so exactly. that was that was really cool to see i'm glad everybody liked it it was a good investment on your part and just a sort of validation of our recommendation from last week yeah exactly exactly and if you haven't listened to that go back and check out our review of 10 minutes to kill shameless self-plug of course on our own podcast the show yeah i don't know (laughs) so we got to play that and then we brought out another old favorite it seems that there were a lot of those last week above and below yeah so that one is just every time we play it i think it just confirms the fact that it is a favorite for yeah. us oh it's, definitely every time it's just a lot of fun i don't know i love it it's just there's so the different adventures going on and then like just all the different you know buildings that you get how you get the different synergies and that kind of stuff what everyone does like this time i went for a very much building heavy uh, strategy versus mm-hmm. you went for an underground heavy strategy i did which was actually interesting because i went for the key building key house whatever they call mm-hmm. them that gives you extra points at the end of the game for undeveloped cavern tiles. So like cave tiles that you've explored, but then haven't actually built any outposts on. Mm-hmm. So I essentially just put all of my effort into Exploration. exploring, spelunking, and doing the sort of the adventures mm-hmm. and the scenarios, and then didn't ever bother to build on those tiles because, you know, I didn't need to. I was getting points for them anyway. Yeah. And it worked out pretty well, which I also really enjoyed because... You know, the explorations and the delves are, without a doubt, the most unique aspect of Above and Below. They're one of the most interesting aspects. Mm -hmm. And I always have felt like I didn't have enough of an opportunity to explore them. You know, I did maybe three, maybe four in an exploration-heavy game. Mm -hmm. But then for the most part, I was focused on building and harvesting. And so I didn't get an opportunity to explore this really, really well-designed, interesting you know sort of narrative side of things that was a fun opportunity for me the one thing that i'm thinking about actually doing is i would love to write a little bit more for each one of these scenarios Mm -hmm. because the one downside i think to them is that they don't give you a nice resolution they just tell you what you get right not how you get it right so i'm just like i was contemplating this the other week like i might take it you know i have think i have a pdf version of them and just look at each one and, you know, see what 
would make sense that you know how it happened that you managed to get this kind of thing and just write a little bit of a narrative in there so we'll see could be fun could yeah, be a fun no, exercise i think that would be really cool and you know they they almost have sort of the same type of effect as flavor text on magic the gathering cards you know mm-hmm. they're little windows into this sort of greater not story necessarily but greater world world exactly yeah. um and so i think it would be a lot of fun to do you know maybe some micro fiction or to do just some sort of exploration of that world yeah i think it would be a lot of fun so look out for that i might be doing that at some point or other yeah but yeah so that's a look at what we've been playing lately all right now it's time to min max our review of role player we're going to be definitely looking for the best stats don't care about charisma we're not face characters damn it we just want to hit things really super hard and not die unless you're the bard Unless you're the bard, but I mean, he's the bard. Who cares? Uh, yeah. So, role player is a game in which you attempt to roll up a RPG character, very D and D inspired, but it is a generic fantasy setting. You basically take turns rolling dice and acquiring skills and equipment in order to sort of build your character. Uh, yep. You know, and there, there's no end goal of doing anything with that character that's just that's it you build the character and then you're done whoever built the best character wins yep exactly so your character you start off with a player board and that is of one of the races so you can be an elf a dwarf a dragon kin a halfling human or orc i believe I think that's so right. you have six different races to choose from each of them although the human is of course flat and no addition no subtraction all the other ones have a minus two and a plus two to one stat each. You also start the game with a class, and the class is based on... You just go into the bag of dice and take out one color dice. You then get that color of a class. The class card has two sides. One of them, is, for example, for the green, you have a druid or a ranger. Each of those has a slightly different ability, but they're pretty balanced in terms of how they work. You have six different colors, and uh, therefore 12 different classes to choose from. Yep. So once uh, you choose that, you also get a background. The background is just you know a card that gives you who you are as a backstory, whether you are you know a warden, a noble, a charlatan, whatever. And these are what gives you goals for where to place certain colored dice on your player board. The character class not only gives you the ability, but it also determines what attributes you want at which levels and right. how many points you get for those. Right. So the last thing you get is your alignment. And that's pretty much, you know, whether you want to be neutral evil, neutral good, you know, chaotic good, lawful evil, whatever it is, your alignment will dictate which one you want to be. Right. And that also gives you a bonus points if you are in the correct alignment. Yeah, and the interesting thing about all of these, with the exception of race, but class, background, and alignment, they're all specific things. You know, you are a wizard, and you are scoundrel, which is a neutral evil class, and you are a scholar background, or something like that. So those are all predetermined, and then you're not trying to make the best character. You know, you're not trying to get all 18s on all of your attributes. Mm -hmm. What you're trying to do is end up with stats that are true to this particular character. So if you're a wizard, 
you know, you want high intelligence, you want decent dexterity, decent wisdom. Mm-hmm. If you're a warrior, you want really, really high strength, really high constitution, not so much in intelligence or charisma. So the idea that you sort of pick a class and then you're trying to engineer a situation where you are true to the classical vision of that class is really interesting and sort of drives the entire thing. And the same is true with alignments. The same is true with backgrounds as well. Oh, that That's a much more abstract sort of mechanic um, that we'll get to in a bit when we talk about how the dice work. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so once you start playing the game, you start getting different cards. And these you can buy throughout the game. And there are a few different types. You have your weapons, your armor, your traits, and your skills. Weapons, you can hold, unless you're the Barbarian, up to two hands worth of weapons. Barbarian grows an extra two arms and right, gets somehow, to have I guess, four hands worth of weapons. I guess they just dual-wield two-handed weapons is probably the rationale for that. That's probably the rationale, but I can just imagine a, you know, a Barbarian with like two fists full of daggers. Prehensile feet. Yeah, exactly. Prehensile feet, something like that. Or yeah. a knife growing out the back of his head. Yeah, there you go. Uh, something like that. Totally reasonable. Exactly. So... The weapons, they give you in-game effects and abilities. So the Blessed Mace, for example. Whenever someone discards a card from the market, which we'll get to in a little bit, you get to take uh, money along with them. There are other ones that give you bonuses for, you know, every dice of this color goes up one value. Mm -hmm. And other things like that. So they're really useful uh, and they're very utilitarian. None of them give you actual points at the end of the game, but during the game they can be very useful. Mm, That's not true. The gold dagger and the longsword each give you points based on which dice are in your tableau. I forgot about those. But they are, as a a subset, those are rare. Weapons tend to have Mm -hmm. useful in-game effects, and the the sort of impact that they have on in-game is actually few and far between. Exactly. Which is completely different than the armor. And the armor is literally all it does is give you points if you collect the sets. That's it. So, you know, there are sets that are associated with the different colors of classes. But the interesting part here is that they're not associated with one color of class. They're associated with two. Right. And even more interesting is that you don't have to be that class in order to wear it. You just get a slight extra benefit if you are. So, for example, the heavy armor, chainmail. If you're a white class, which is cleric paladin or a red class, which is warrior barbarian, you get bonus points if you have that set. But a wizard can still use the heavy armor. They just don't get bonus points from it. So that opens up interesting opportunities because a lot of the class abilities say when you take a piece of armor, gain X benefit or perform Y action. So Mm -hmm. you don't have to be, you know, pigeonholed into just taking light armor if you're a wizard. You can take any piece of armor that comes up and still benefit from it yeah and it's also interesting that the sets are unequal themselves like the wizard sorcerer type of armor there are only three pieces of it versus there i think of five pieces of the cleric warrior armor yeah so there are different point values there different kinds of things but it's just interesting to see how that whole dynamic works and you know collecting them but you know for example you can screw people over by buying that kind of armor or, you know, throwing it out mm-hmm. during the market phase because you know that they'll want it. Yeah. So there's that. Next, there are the skills. And the skills are 
they're very interesting because they all give you some kind of in-game effect and you tap it to use it. But the other cost for the skill is that you have to move your alignment in a certain direction. So if you're a pickpocket, for example, you would have to move your alignment towards, I believe it's evil. I think that's right. So if you can't move your alignment towards evil, well, you can't use pickpocket. So it adds this really cool dynamic where you almost want to have skills that are like complementary of each other where one moves you right and the other one moves you left kind of thing, or towards chaotic, towards lawful. So you can use the two of them off of each other. Yeah. But at the same time, only one of your skills refreshes each turn. So you can't just have this chain that, you know, you can use them all or anything like that. You can only use a certain number of skills, and you really have to be careful about where you're moving yourself on the alignment grid, because you could also get up to negative three points because of that. Right, yeah. So it's something, it's an extra sort of impact you want to be able to juggle your alignment so that you can use the skills and get the you know sort of mid-game during game bonuses but you don't want to get too reckless with them and end up you know lawful good when you should be chaotic evil and then lose out on three points or however Mm -hmm. many because you weren't paying attention to your to your alignment so exactly and the last kind of card that you can get is the trait card these are mostly end game effects And what they do is they just give you points for certain specific combinations of skills or uh, attributes mostly. So you could have a trait card that says if you have an intelligence or a wisdom lower than eight or lower, you get two points. Right. Or for every skill that you have, you get an extra point for, you know, every... So it's interesting how they work as well because they have usually pretty really steep requirements yeah yeah they kind of tend to come in two flavors there's sort of the ones that are low impact they get you one maybe two points and they're pretty easy to accomplish i think there's one that gets you two points and it just is that you just pay the money for it you get two points at the end of the game and then there's the ones that have really really high point potential up to i think at least 12 points for some of them if not more for others but they're insanely difficult to pull off you know you have to get exactly the right combination of skills and attributes and weapons or you know you have to really tank your stats in order to get it and it's it's just they are something that you have to build for and play into otherwise they're not really going to give you any sort of benefit Mm -hmm. and these also move your alignment when you purchase them right and they just do so once when you first purchase them and then that's it So these are all pretty much just the different ways that you can build your character. Right. These are everything that we've talked about so far. Weapons, armor, all of that. These are things that you can acquire. Let's talk about how you acquire them. So each game is played in rounds. And each round, the first player takes a number of dice equal to the number of players in the game plus one. And they roll those dice. Those dice can come in six different colors plus gold. So seven possible different colors, one pertaining to each of the classes, and one that's gold, which gets you gold. Those dice are placed onto initiative cards in reverse order. So people with better initiative, people who act first during the market phase, which comes after, are going to have worse, lower die values. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's a mitigation effect. It's a balance effect. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you had you know the best initiative and the best die number, that just wouldn't be fair. Exactly. 
But so each person going around in order makes a determination as to which die they want. They take that die and that initiative card, and they place that die somewhere in their stat spread. So you have six attributes, and each attribute has space for three dice. Mm -hmm. And each time you place a die, you're allowed to take an action that corresponds to that particular attribute. Yep. And this is where I think the game really shines. Because these actions are some of the most imaginative and really effective forms of dice mitigation I've ever seen. So strength, for example, allows you to flip any one die anywhere on your board, including the one that you just placed, over to its opposite face. So you can turn a one into a six. And other, you know, other abilities do the same sorts of things. Intelligence allows you to re-roll. Constitution, you can move a die up one or down one as you see fit. And so this is really how you get around the sort of inherently luck-based mechanic that comes along with a dice-heavy game. Yeah. And I think it's something that really works and is really important to the game because otherwise it would just be almost pure chance and not really a lot of fun. Exactly, exactly. And now with placing the dice, we also have the background cards, which they have a grid of you know six by three, same as your actual spaces for the for the dice and when you place the dice you have to place them in such a way that they are in the leftmost part of the grid possible so you know if it's the first die that you put in there it has to be all the way on the left until you complete it with a third die on the right and if you do complete you get an extra one gold for completing it because you completed a whole row it's right. nice little bonus <laughs> and so for the actual backgrounds you have to you know look and be like, okay, I need a white in constitution in square number two. So, you know, if you grab a white that's like really good for your constitution, it might not be the best idea to put it in there right now, or you might want to use your dexterity to switch the two dice later on or something like that, because you can get up to six points if you get every single one of those in there correctly. Right. And then this is also balanced by the fact that as I said, most of the dice correspond to one of the classes, so red dice for warriors or barbarians. And the more dice you have that pertain to your color, the more points you get at the end of the game. Each of those is, by default, worth one. So you have to sort of weigh, okay, what's the availability of dice in my color versus do I want to try to fulfill my background versus even, you know, just what do I have access to? Sometimes, you know, there's no red dice on the field. You take what you can get. Yeah. But all of these sorts of things are swirling around each other, and there's so many different considerations that go into how you successfully build a character. Exactly, because, it, I mean, on top of all that, you're still trying to get to certain values and attributes. Right. So, yeah. you know, sometimes there's just, there's, you know, a one of your color, let's say black, and a six of green. And you need a six in order to complete, like, this one attribute. And it's like... Do I want to take the one of black and hope that I can use strength later on to flip it? Or, you know, am I just going to take the six and put it in there and just complete it? Yeah. And so there's all these considerations. It makes for a really strategic... I think actually the min-maxing analogy is sort of an apt one because yeah. you're looking essentially at the marginal point value of what you do. Mm -hmm. You know, say I only get one point if I achieve my strength goal, but I get six points if i successfully put the color in the right place on the strength row mm -hmm. so you know i don't care necessarily what color or you know what value that die is it's worth more to me incrementally yeah. to put this color there even if it's a one face so yeah. it's all this sort of trading and up and down and looking at the margins that that make i think really a great in-depth strategy 
Exactly, exactly. And and the game really does feel pretty deep in general. Like everyone is really thinking about, you know, do I want this? You know, how am I going to use this? Like what calculations you have to get those extra points or, you know, what items to get and mm-hmm. all that. Yeah. Which brings us to the actual market phase. Right. So after everyone has had an opportunity to place their dice, perform the actions related to that stat, you know, whatever it is that they're going to do, uh, you move into the market phase. And then this is where initiative becomes important because starting with the lowest initiative, not necessarily first player, you are given the opportunity to purchase or sell items from the market row in the middle. And so these are those things that we mentioned earlier. Weapons and armor will appear here, but also things like skills and traits. So if you have a low initiative, you're given first run at these sorts of things, and that can give you an opportunity to, you know, make up for the fact that you might have lower quality dice. Or it allows you to get in and strategically sell off something that someone else maybe wants. So Mm -hmm. we mentioned that there are sort of proficiency bonuses if you are a heavy armor class wearing heavy armor. If I'm a rogue and I don't see anything else on the board that I want, I'm just going to go ahead and sell that heavy armor to prevent Jacob from getting it because he gets bonus points and I get money, which I can use down the line to pay for something that Mm -hmm. I want. So the market phase is is another different sort of strategic element it's less strategy about how do i successfully build my character and more about okay how do i interact with others in such a way that again i get the biggest marginal benefit is two points for me worth more than denying three points to my opponent those types of considerations exactly exactly so once you're done with that uh you go next person gets to take the dice out, roll them again, and it all starts from the very top. And you play until the character sheet of every everyone is completely filled out, which will happen at the same time because, well, everyone takes one die per turn. You have to. You can't skip it, anything like that. And that's pretty much the game. Yeah. that I mean, you know, that's about the, the scope of the game. So let's talk a little bit about how it feels. You know, does mm-hmm. it feel successful? And I, I think I say yes. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that this is a really fun game. I definitely very much enjoyed it. And it feels like you're min-maxing a character. Right. And you have the dice, the dice mitigation, that kind of stuff. It's all there. It's all. It's very clever, too. You mm-hmm. know, because we, you know, people who... There's a lot of overlap between people who play board games and people who play tabletop RPGs. Yep. And so, you know, a lot of us are very familiar with this sort of constant, okay, I'm going to roll my stats for it. Oh, I don't like that stat spread. I'm going to re-roll a different stat spread. You know, this sort of trials and tribulations and the, the long, drawn-out process of creating a character so that when someone comes along and says, hey, you know what, we can make a sort of tongue-in-cheek kind mm-hmm. of meta game about this, that's something that just feels familiar Yeah, yeah. in definitely. a really fun, new sort of way. I completely agree. I, I definitely really liked how it came out. But that being said, no game is perfect. That's right. One complaint that I do have is the availability of items. Each item in the game is unique. There is only one copy of any given trait, skill, you name it, which looks good on paper, but because of the fact that you remove cards from the beginning of the game, even if you're playing with the maximum number of players in the game, I feel like there's a chance that you could screw over certain types of classes people who are trying to build characters in certain ways that is just unavoidable 
You know, if someone trashes a card that I can't get to, that's on me. That's a game mechanic. I could have picked a lower initiative if I really wanted that card. But if that card that is going to be huge for my build, maybe not game-winning, but helpful for my build, was never in the game in the first place, that bugs me a little bit. It would have been nice to see maybe a reduced number of different types of cards, but two copies of each of them, just to try to avoid some of that. Yep, and... Also, some of the traits, we mentioned that they were very difficult to obtain or like to attain, I think is the better word. True, yeah. They can be really, really difficult. Like most of the time you're only going to be able to possibly make like one trait card, something like that, possibly get points from two. But even then, they can be game winning, but not alone. Yeah. Like it's the kind of thing where they're just that little bonus. I would have liked if they were... Just a little bit more attainable, just a slight bit of a different balance there. And then finally, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the colorblindness issue. Your new roommate is colorblind, and he played this game with you and some others just the other night. And he had a huge problem figuring out which die was which, which, because we mentioned, you know, that factors into background, that factors into bonus points based on your class die. It is something that is an important game mechanic. And so... Mm -hmm. Just any sort of thing that you could do to differentiate the colors of dice. Um, we came up with the idea of having the one face on a die be a symbol that sort of represents that class. So, you know, the red dice could be like an axe or a fiery yeah. something. And the, the white die could be lay on hands. You know, just yeah. something, some easily recognizable image so that you could say, okay, this is what this die represents. You know, just some way to work around it. But obviously, you know... It is tough with dice, and we get that, but just something to point out. Yep, exactly. That being said, let's give an overview. What do you think of this game? Overall, I love this game. I think it's very, very clever. I think it's very well done. I think it handles sort of the luck aspect in probably the best way I've ever seen for a game like this in terms of mitigating the effect that pure chance has on it. So for all those reasons, I'm going to give it a buy it. I think this is a great game and belongs on any gamer's shelf. I think it's a really good game. I do enjoy it quite a bit. I am going to give it a play it just because it's a lot of fun. I don't think it's completely necessary, but I highly recommend at least giving it a shot. And now I've actually played a few other kinds of games that are similar to this one. So I'll give a few suggestions similar to role player with a bit of a different theme. These are all, all like dice mitigation kind of games. First is Dark Rock Ventures, and this is an asteroid mining game. You're trying to mine different things from asteroids, but again, it's very much based on what you roll with your dice and how you can change that roll in order to get to certain exact rolls, and you're almost even betting on which roll you're getting to. Another one is Favor the Pharaoh, and this is a game, again, you have a lot of dice that you're rolling, and you're getting different dice that actually have slightly different faces, and when you roll them, you can get... Some of them only have four, fives, or six, and other ones only have ones, twos, or threes. So you're trying to mitigate all that of that kind of randomness, which can be a lot of fun. And again, they have a lot of things with, you know, add one pip, take one away, flip it over, other things like that. So both of those are very good dice mitigation games, as well as Alien Frontiers. So another one about colony building that has pretty much to do with making sets of dice, making different ones like that that are very specific and again you need to have a lot of mitigation for these kinds of games so if you like the dice mitigation aspect of any of those check out role player and vice versa 
And there you have it. That's our review of Roleplayer. Thank you very much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Dragon's Demise. Be sure to check out WashingtonCon.com for tickets that are on sale now. WashingtonCon this year is going to be held at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. We're going to be there. A lot of our friends from Labyrinth Games are going to be there. We hope to see you there as well. It should be a lot of fun. Also, be on the lookout for some live streams from us. This time we're going to be doing Zombicide Black Plague with us as well as some of our friends. It's going to be a harrowing good time. We hope you check it out. Also, join us next week when we will be reviewing Trains. <laughs>